Well, hello, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Andrew Gross. I'm an elder here, and uh, I've uh, been doing a sermon series for a few weeks now uh, entitled uh, Restoration of Community, and it's part of our 90 Days of Community. And again, like I've mentioned the last couple weeks, 90 Days of Community doesn't mean we stop being a community after 90 days. Uh, but for 90 days, we're really going to press into this theme. And uh, if you remember last week, the week before, I exhorted all of us to press into God, pray to God, God, what, what, how would you have me plug into community? How would you have me contribute? You know, there, uh, Paul wrote in his letter to the, to the Corinthians, who, who they just didn't get community at all. He, he wrote, when you gather, each one of you has a gift. Each one of you has a contribution, uh, and, and that's true. No matter how young you are, no matter how old you are, no matter how experienced you are, no matter how uh, new you are to Christ, when we gather, everyone has some sort of gift. Some are big and dramatic and flashy, and everybody sees them. Some are tiny and hidden, and nobody notices them. But everybody comes with some kind of contribution to help build up the whole body. And the way Paul put it was that we're like a, a body that doesn't function if parts of that body aren't uh, connected and aren't functioning. So uh, no matter how much you think you are, you know, I don't know, the body's hindquarters, I don't know, <laughs> no matter how much that uh, you feel like you're insignificant, you have a very important role to play. You have a very important contribution to make. So for 90 days, uh, our, our challenge to you, press in to how God might have you contribute it. And, and it might be um, something that's kind of scary if you kind of risky. Um, uh, and when you got up and, and said that, that might have been risky for you. That doesn't seem kind of like, you know, you're usually more quiet, but that was from God, I believe, what you shared. So, um, you know, uh, it might be something risky like that. It might be something um, you haven't done in a, in a while, but all of us are going to ask God, God, how can I contribute? How can I uh, press in? Um, well, a little bit of review for a few minutes of what we've been talking about. The first week, I laid uh, four foundations we have to get straight in our mind about community. Foundation number one is that community imitates God. God himself is a community. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit... And the way they interact with each other, uh, loving one another, um, working for each other's glory, laying down their lives for the other, the way that the, each person in the Godhead operates with each other, that's our model for community. So when we, uh, when we sign up to become Christians, when we say, I want to follow Jesus, I want to be like God, we're, follow, we're, we're signing up to be in community. Foundation number two, we become like him only in community. Uh, there is no uh, such thing as kind of the, what gets called like a lone ranger Christian or a lone wolf Christian who's getting holy all on his own or who's getting um, more and more uh, united with God all on her own. That doesn't exist. It's only in community that we become like, like God. Uh, foundation number three, we live in him and bear fruit for him only in community. One of Jesus' last speeches 
uh, to one of his last teachings to his, his disciples before he left, uh, before he, he died and then, and then rose again. Uh, it's recorded in John 15, and, and he commanded his disciples, he said, you bear fruit. And in the Greek, he wasn't saying you individuals bear fruit. He was saying all of you. It was a plural you. you like they might say in the South, y'all. Y'all bear fruit now. Um, uh, it was, we don't have a plural you really in, in English anymore, but they had a plural plural you in ancient Greek. So, Foundation four, we reveal God to the world only in community. The world was never meant to find out about and discover God by just looking at amazing celebrity Christians, individual celebrity Christians. Uh, the world was meant to find out about God by looking at the whole community operating together. So, some foundations I laid, a little bit of repeats for you. Um, last week, we looked at a couple of the roots of withdrawal. Why? If community is so important, if community is so key, so essential, so much a part of being a Christian, why do we so often want to withdraw? Lots of reasons for it. I named two of them. One was an apathy, a sense of, uh, or, or a lack of feeling towards God. And so I, I asked us uh, to ask ourselves some hard questions. Number one, have I been born again? Because by definition, to be born again means you now have God's own desires living in you. And uh, even though almost all of us go through seasons, sometimes even long seasons, of not desiring God, not, not desiring what God desires, if we've been born again, those desires of his still are inside of us, and he, he wants to fan those into flame and cause those to grow. And the um, scripture that I've gone over a few times there, uh, if we've passed from life to death, we know we've passed from life to death because we love the brethren. Uh, second question I had us ask was, have I made Jesus my treasure? Because, you see, if something's really your, tre- your treasure, you will sacrifice anything for it. No sacrifice, no loss, no setback, no difficulty is too great to block you from what you truly treasure. And if Jesus is our treasure and his desires are living inside of us, then that means that we want to treasure his community. Okay? So if Jesus' treasure is our community, we, nothing, no, no setback, no difficulty, no roadblock is going to stop us from treasuring the community of Christ. <clears throat> um, another verse I've quoted a few times, if anyone says I love God yet hates his brother, he's a liar. Uh, another uh, theologian I've quoted a number of times, an uh, Asian theologian uh, who lives in Singapore, he's summarizing 2,000 years of, of Christian teaching He says, the more perfected in love the saint becomes, the greater the identification with the church. The closer the union with God, the stronger the bond with Christ's body. Sainthood is perfected in communion with others and never apart from it. So, you know, no matter how uh, overwhelming and amazing our feelings we experience when, when we are alone with God, they... They might be just wonderful. They might feel like we're just transported to another world. Guess what? The test of if that's real or not, if that's true, is how we end up interacting with community. Are we going to love the body? Are we going to love the brethren, the sisters? 
okay? Are we going to love one another? That's the real test of, of if those experiences are real. Um, then, almost done with this little review here. Last week we also looked at another reason we withdraw, and that's that orphan spirit. It's that sneaking suspicion that I'm rejected. It's that orphan's mentality uh, that uh, I'm rejected, I'm rejectable. And the solution to that, and many of us uh, received some prayer on that, was accept God's own spirit of adoption, his Holy Spirit. See, what the Holy Spirit does in us is he confirms to us that we actually are God's child. No matter what the evidence seems to say, no matter what our, how many times we've been rejected by other people, no matter how badly we've been hurt, the Holy Spirit tells us in a deep way that no other thing could ever do, we actually are children of God. We belong, we belong to God. So that's, that's how we, we counteract that, that orphan spirit is <clears throat> with the spirit of adoption, God's own Holy Spirit. Well, uh, you might ask the question, you know, is, is it really, is the church really worth it? It seems like a lot of work, uh, you know, got to get through this orphan spirit thing. I kind of like feeling like a victim and being rejected, you know. Um, I have to pass that apathy. I got to like, you know, sometimes I like being apathetic. Um, do I really, do I have to, do I have to persevere through that? Is the church really worth it? Is the church worth it? It's, it's a fair question. Um, especially, you know, as I mentioned first couple weeks, you know, the church sometimes, she doesn't look too pretty. Uh, got all kinds of warts, all kinds of blemishes. Um, you know, sometimes uh, we think about the ugliest thing on earth <laughs> is the church. Uh, so is it worth it? Is it worth it? Well, <clears throat> I mentioned, uh, I quoted one of our new members, Andrew Hill and Miriam Hill, uh, uh, something they, they were actually quoting somebody else. Um, he said, the church is God's solution to the world. In fact, another, another quote from the Hills, um, the church is actually God's plan A for the world. God, the church is God's plan A. It's not a revolution. It's not a big political solution. It's not a lack of a political solution. It's It's... It's the church. That is God's solution to this broken world. That's his plan B. And guess what? There is no plan B. There's no plan B. There's, the church is plan A, and there is no plan B. So we need to wrestle with this. We need to figure out what is this community thing all about? We, 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 need, to, we need to do this work. So... That leaves us with today's message. Last week I named two things that cause us to withdraw um, apathy or an orphan spirit. Well, what about, what about when the reason that we withdraw is that community has violated me? What, how do we deal with that? All right? It's one thing to deal with the rejection spirit. You're kind of dealing with the mentality not actual reality necessarily, sometimes some reality, but how do we deal with it when community violates me? Uh, and, and worse, what if that community is a Christian community? What if it's Christian community 
that's violated me. This, this place that's supposed to be warm and loving and accepting and my needs are supposed to get met and I'm, it's supposed to be like a family, and, uh, but it's Christian community that's violated me. And, and, you know, when this happens, sometimes historically churches don't have the greatest track record of, 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 of handling this, to be quite honest. Uh, sometimes, sometimes churches are dismissive of people who've been violated by Christian community. Sometimes uh, we minimize the seriousness of, of the violation. Sometimes, sometimes we blame the victim. I've, I've seen that happen. It's, 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 it's sad. We'll, we'll say, well, it must have been your fault that that, that, that happened. Um, sometimes we try to cover up, um, especially if it's a church leader that's violated another. Sometimes we try to cover that up, try to save their face instead of help the victim. Um, sometimes we give overly simplistic answers. Sometimes we urge people to reconcile or forgive or forget when um, it's still unsafe to do that. It's, it's not the time to do that, but sometimes we push them to do that. So, you know, we don't have, churches in general don't always have the best track record with this, and some t- and, and when we do that to people, unfortunately, you know, we actually force people to live lies. You know, if, if we tell a victim, oh, it must be your fault, or it didn't really happen, or we minimize it, they're forced to kind of, you know, often they, I, what I hear from people who've been victimized by, in churches is they, they sort of feel like they're going crazy, actually. And, uh, you know, we're sort of forcing them to, to sort of live in a way that's not actually true or real or believe lies. And, and, that, and then people really isolate. People withdraw, and, and understandably so. Understandably so. So, do we still need to stick with community? Even when we've been violated? Do we still need to stick with community? And I, guys, I, I totally understand. This is a really hard topic for people. Um, I'm, I'm scared to preach it because of the rawness of this material. So, I, I've already t- asked you <laughs> a couple times be praying for me. And those of you who know how to pray, be praying silently um, as, you, uh, as you listen. But um, yeah, you know what? We do need to stick with community. We still need to stick with community. The church still is worth it. The church still is God's plan A. Uh, and there is no plan B. That's just life. That's how God designed it. So we do need to stick with it. So when church or a community does violate us, we need to figure out the appropriate ways to respond. So, how do we respond? <clears throat> now, the first thing we need to do to respond is we need to determine if it is a true violation. Okay, now some of you might... Say, well, but Andrew, I thought you just said it's bad when a church minimizes a violation. Yes, that, that, that is bad. I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize a real violation, but sometimes things feel to us like a violation and they aren't actually a violation. Does that, does that make sense? It can be as painful as a real violation, uh, a real injustice, but it might not be a real injustice. And you know what? It takes hard work and time to figure out the difference. It, it does. There's no way around some hard work and time. If you've been walking with Christian community for any length of time, you've been hurt, I've been hurt, everyone's been hurt, and it takes a while. But when, when something offends you, when something feels difficult to you, it takes a while to sort through, okay, was that a real 
violation. And, and I wish there was a way around the hard work. That would be really nice. There isn't a way around the hard work. And if we're going to become mature, we've got to become those kinds of people Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, take the log out of your own eye before you try to get the speck out of your neighbor's eye. All right, You guys all know what I'm referring to? Jesus, on purpose, used these ridiculous-sounding contrasts. A log in your eye and a speck in your neighbor's eyes. He he did that on purpose because so often what feels like an offense, what feels like a violation, that's what's what's really going on. And and we need to go through that first, okay? Uh, And and here's one little maybe discernment rule to to sort of know the difference between those. Um, Is this thing that I'm offended by, is it something that would offend God? You guys get that? Is is God offended by this? That will help you figure out, was that, was I just actually violated? Was I just trespassed against? Was that, was some injustice done against me? Is, is this something that would actually offend God? Okay? So, we, we need to do that work. Okay, now, I'm going to say like, I'm going to sound like I'm saying the exact opposite thing. So, buckle in your seatbelts here. Response number two. Embrace... God's call to rebuke. Rebuke? What on earth am I talking about? In front of you, you all have a Bible. I want to show you. This is actually biblical. So if everyone can take out their Bible in front of them, or if you brought your own, and in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 18, if everyone could turn to Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18. Now, this is the famous reconciliation passage. This is what gets quoted the most often when it's time to try to reconcile two parties in the church. This is the, the passage where Jesus, the, the disciples said, how many times should we forgive? And Jesus said, seven times 70, which is kind of a poetic way of saying, keep on forgiving and keep on, and like never stop forgiving. Okay, so uh, a very important passage. But we need to look at how it starts off. Step number one in the reconciliation passage, in this reconciliation pattern here, Jesus lays out for us, verse 15. Everybody glance at verse 15. This is the first step, step number one. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Now, what do we usually do, especially if we're from the upper Midwest? What do we usually do? We like to sweep it under the rug. We like to minimize it. We uh, like to pretend it didn't really happen. We uh, say, oh, no, 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 it wasn't, wasn't that, that big of a deal. Um, we, we, we try to somehow, uh, you know, pretend it's not a big deal and then just keep going. Like, you know, even if we're dying on the inside, we're just going to keep being nice with each other. Now, that might be a truce. It might be a ceasefire but that's not reconciliation. That's not reconciliation. How can it be reconciliation if the violation, the offense, isn't brought out into the open? If that sort of, you know, that white elephant in the room isn't named and and called out? Uh, How how can that actually be reconciliation? Now, 
Rebuke can be kind. It can be respectful. In fact, it has to be kind and it has to be respectful. It's definitely loving. Okay, rebuke isn't going up to somebody and, you know, you are the meanest, bro. I do not like your haircut. You know, rebuke, whatever. That, uh, um, rebuke isn't mean and nasty and vicious and, and, and uh, it's not done in a gleeful way like, now I'm going to get them and the Bible tells me to rebuke and I love it. <laughs> um, that, that's not rebuke. Rebuke is it's kind, it's respectful, it's definitely in line with love and it's actually, rebuke is very much centered on the well-being of the other person because the scripture here says, show him his fault. His fault is going to get this brother or sister in trouble. That, it's killing him. It's hurting him. And so when you go and show your brother and sister uh, his or her fault, what you're do, you're actually helping them. Okay. So rebuke is a is a loving thing to do, especially when it's done the right way. Now some of you, especially from the Upper Midwest, you're like that is not Minnesota nice. I do not like that. Uh, and, and you know it's not Minnesota nice. It's so not Minnesota nice. But guess what? Jesus isn't interested in building Minnesota nice culture. That's not Jesus' agenda. That's not Jesus' agenda. Jesus' agenda is building a mature church culture, real church culture, not Minnesota church culture, kingdom culture. Kingdom culture. All right. Um, And, you know, I mean, isn't it empowering to know uh, and encouraging to know that when we are violated against, Jesus actually sets up a pattern uh, for reconciliation um, that holds the perpetrator, the violator, accountable. That, isn't that encouraging to know that? Jesus actually built that into the pattern. All right. Some of you might be asking. I'm asking myself. What about when you can't have this face-to-face uh, reconciliation. What what happens, let's say the perpetrator is dead or gone or there's no way to, to track them down, they live on the other side of the world perhaps, uh, what, if, what if it's too dangerous to confront your perpetrator? For example, someone who's been abused uh, and uh, it's, it's too dangerous to try to, to talk to that abuser. To talk to that abuser might be putting yourself back into the same abuse cycle. Uh, and what do you do then? Or what if you've done this or you've tried it and you just can't forgive? You just can't. It's still eating you on the inside what's, what's been done to you. What, what, do, you, what do you do? And, 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 and what if you've really tried to forgive? And, you know, and you've, you've had uh, people pray for you to help you forgive. And you've said a thousand times, oh God, I forgive this person. I release this person. You've said it a thousand times. And you've had prayer appointments to help you forgive. And you've gone to a therapist to help you forgive. And, and it's still eating you inside. Okay, here's the part I really want you to pray. <laughs> um, when that happens, when that happens, we need to meditate on a particular aspect of God. And I, and I, and I, I just want you to stick with me, guys. Some of you are going to want to get up and walk out when you hear me say this. <clears throat> we need to meditate on God's wrath. Now that sounds really, really 
weird. And most of the time, we want to ignore that word in the Bible. We Many times, we're embarrassed by it. We really wish that word wasn't actually there. And you know, one of the reasons we like to ignore it is because when we're wrathful, usually what that means is this kind of like out of control, like unjustifiable wrath. You know, unjustifiable, just blow up. You know, somebody does something to tick us off and we're just, you know, that's, that's usually what we think of uh, when, when we're wrathful. And so we can't imagine how God could be wrathful. We, we, we wouldn't want to think of God that way. But here's the thing, just a few things about this word. It, it's, it's a biblical word. I didn't make it up. Um, I've struggled with it myself. God's wrath is always justified anger at something that deserves anger, at wickedness, at injustice, at violation, okay? God's wrath is actually a good thing, and he's very much in control of it. We're, we're not in control of our wrath at times. Some, something, someone steps on our toes and we just blow up at them. Uh, God's wrath, he's very much in control of it, and it's actually another word for God's justice. It's another word for God, God's justice. Him bringing, holding people accountable, holding systems accountable, uh, holding wickedness and violation accountable. It's actually, believe it or not, wrath is actually another word for God's love. It's God's love bumping up against evil. Okay? And God wanting to put a stop to the evil. And guess what? It is a very biblical way of moving towards forgiveness and reconciliation. Believe it or not. Paul, the guy who talks more about God's grace than anybody else in the whole Bible, Paul writes, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. I'm going to come back to this in, in, in just a, a minute here, but David in the Psalms goes throughout the, the scriptures. David writes, I have seen a wicked and ruthless man flourishing like a green tree in its native soil, but he soon passed away and was no more. Though I looked for him, he could not be found. David did this. He actually meditated on how the wicked would be brought to justice. That was part of what comforted and consoled David in the midst of all the trials that he went through. So David did this, and he wants us to do this. Um, go back here to this, this passage from, from Paul's. You see, when I say meditate on God's wrath, I mean this. I mean leave room for God's wrath. In other words, let God get his way in the situation. Let God get his way in the situation. Let God bring your perpetrator to justice. Okay? Um, I tell my kids this all the time when they're fighting with each other. One of the things that causes the worst fights is they, they each think they're taking revenge for something bad that was done to them. Right? Is that any parents? You guys know that the, the kid, you know, well, I just did that because he did it to me. You know, that... You guys know what I'm talking about. Um, and we tell them, don't take justice into your own hands. Let mom or dad deal with it. And the reason is because 
when, when we bring people to justice, when we bring our child to justice and discipline them, it's a whole lot, number one, it's more effective, and it's a whole lot more right and correct than when one of our children takes justice into his own hands and inflicts it on his, his sibling. Are you guys following me? Okay. Same thing with God. When we take justice into our hands, we inevitably mess it up, and we mess it up royally. And there's sort of active ways that we take justice into our own hands, you know, like becoming a vigilante or, uh, you know, that's kind of extreme. But, uh, you know, trying to, you know, blowing up at somebody, trying to sabotage them, trying to hurt somebody. Or there's, there's passive ways that we try to take justice in our own hands. I'm just not going to talk to him. Just not going to talk to him. You know, inside we're just boiling, and, 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 uh, but, but we're passively trying to take justice into our own hands. And unforgiveness so often is trying to take justice into our own hands. It's a passive way to take justice into our own hands. Uh, what we're doing is we're, if, we're saying, oh, if I forgive them, then I'm letting that perpetrator off the hook. They are, and do, does this not happen? Am I the only one? where I have a hard time forgiving somebody because I'm thinking, but if I forgive them, God, they will never have to face the consequences. They will never know how much it actually hurt me. They will never get it. Oh, and I just want them to get how much they hurt me. Am I the only one like that? I know most of you guys are more holy than me, but okay. But that gnaws at us, doesn't it? And it, and it, and it stops us from releasing people. We know we're supposed to forgive. The Bible is so clear about that. There's no way around that we're supposed to forgive those who perpetrate against us. But when we fear that the perpetrator won't be brought to justice, it's like, it's like this gnawing little thing deep down inside of us, and it just we just can't let go. And so when we leave room for God's wrath, when we say, God... I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know when you're going to do it. Somehow, you're going to hold this person accountable. Somehow, you're going to do it, God. You know what? That's when we have the freedom to finally let go. No more revenge. No more aggressive, active revenge. No more passive revenge and, and unforgiveness. We get to let go and, and trust God's going to take care of the justice. And, and no, by the way, some of you are thinking, but if they're a Christian, doesn't Jesus forgive them and like get, off, get them off the hook? No. Now, they might get off the ultimate hook of hellfire, for sure, if they're a Christian, the person who's perpetrated against you. That, that's definitely the case. But somehow, God, in his, in his justice, will hold the perpetrator accountable. I, I don't know how, I don't know when, it you may never see it in this lifetime, but somehow God will hold all of us accountable. All right? And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's ultimately healing for everybody. Now, another thing that this does, when you leave room for God's wrath, and when you really get a sense for how certain it is that God's going to hold the perpetrator accountable, when you get a sense for just how exactly God is going to mete out his justice, when you get a sense for just how perfectly God's going to fit the punishment to the crime, 
when you get a sense for how unbending God is about this, when you get a sense for how inescapable his, ju- his righteous judgment is going to be, guess what happens inside of our heart? We are instantly catapulted, catapulted over to a complete opposite feeling of compassion for our perpetrator. We can be filled with the same thing Jesus had on the cross, the same thing Stephen, the first martyr, had when they were stoning him to death, that sense of, oh, we begin to pray, God, please spare them, because they don't know what they're doing. Please, God, spare them. They don't know what they were doing. You ever wonder how Jesus was able to to say that, to pray that when he was dying on the cross? We can pray that way, too, when we get the full picture of God's justice in our mind. We can actually pray that. And guys, this happened to me. This, this has actually happened in real practice. I, um, I'm not going to share the details, but there, there was um, a, a way I, I uh, was... <clears throat> uh, anyway, very difficult situation. All the way goes all the way back to childhood. And I tried... Once I became a Christian and I knew I was supposed to forgive... I've been a Christian almost 20 years now, and I've and, and regularly tried and tried and tried. Sometimes felt like I was making more progress than others in forgiving this person. Kept trying and trying and trying, and, but it would keep coming back, gnawing at me. And you know what? Finally, when I started to really leave room for God's wrath, when I started to really trust God's justice in this, my heart began to change, and I started praying for this person. God, spare him. He doesn't know what he's doing. He, he doesn't know what he's doing. Please, God, spare him. Forgive him. Have mercy on him, God. That you can actually experience that and walk in that, okay? And that is an incredible place of freedom. All right. These last couple are um, shorter here. Um, response. Uh, number four, that the other one was just response three. I got the numbers messed up. It's response four, embrace your powerlessness. Now, this sounds like the opposite of what I said earlier about rebuking. It's kind of empowering to know that you get to rebuke your perpetrator. But again, what if that's not possible? What if it's too dangerous or threatening for you to do that? What if it's, uh, what if it's not time for it? What if you can't reconnect with a person? They're, maybe they've passed away. Um, uh, when that's the case, we actually need to embrace our powerlessness. And this is how we privately handle that sense of injustice. Um, something uh, Isaiah, God had Isaiah write hundreds of years before Jesus. For this is what the high and lofty one says, He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly of spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You see, there is a special protection for the powerless, for the person who assumes and embraces that lowly position of being powerless. God has a special place of protection. Now, it, it, it may not be a protection from harm, in fact, almost certainly isn't, uh, or a protection of like smooth sailing for the rest of your life. But what God protects is the thing that's the most precious of all, and that is your relationship with Jesus. He protects Jesus 
in your heart, when all the things that threaten to harden your heart, all the violations and, and trials and difficulties that threaten to make you want to get bitter, the Holy Spirit, when you assume a lowly place, the Holy Spirit will protect that soft place in your heart where you can trust, you can keep trusting in Jesus. Uh, and so when we hide ourselves in this safest of all places, that's the center of God's will, assume our lowly position in him and embrace it, God gets to be mighty on our behalf. And, and, and you know, years will go by and you won't see your perpetrator brought to justice. Um, uh, decades will go by and you won't see your perpetrator brought to justice. You might die and you haven't gotten to see your perpetrator brought to justice. And, and guess what, though? You get to have a secret assurance in your heart. God is still all over it. God is being mighty on your behalf. Somehow, and when all things are finally reconciled at the end of days, when, all things fi- when, when God brings all things uh, overtly under the feet of Jesus, we're going to see that justice carried out, that vindication. Lastly, last way to respond. Meditate on your real future. Meditate on your real future. Now, David, uh, again, did this, and he wants us to do this. He says, consider the blameless, observe the upright. There is a future for the man of peace. But all sinners will be destroyed. The future of the wicked will be cut off. I want you to think about this. There is a future for the man of peace. If you've been reconciled with Jesus, if you are his friend, if you have become one of his children, there is a future for you. Now, this might not sound super profound. It might sound like Christianity 101. But, you know, one of the reasons it's so hard to forgive is because so often that past wound feels like it's condemned us to a miserable future. It feels awful. Sometimes things that have happened to some of us in this room that are so bad, so awful, it makes us feel like damaged goods. It makes us feel irredeemable. It makes us feel like it, it, it was too awful. I, I was taken too far down the path of darkness and left there to die, and I can't get back. Okay? But, brothers and sisters, the good news this morning, the good news is that that past hurt, that past violation and wound, that is not the final summarizing chapter of your life story. It is not. Okay? It is not. The good news today is that that past violation does not get the final word. It does not get the final word in your life. Now, it might feel like that there are several chapters in your life where that's the dominant theme, okay? But you need to focus on the final chapter because that's not, that, that, that violation is not what writes the whole story. Some of us think that the title of the story of our life is she ended up a victim, or uh, his hurt was so bad that it colored everything in his life. Guess what? 
If we are a child of God, if we've been reconciled to him, that is not the title of the story of your life. The title is, she is a victor. That is the title of your life. Uh, scripture, I could quote zillions of scripture passages to get at this. You have not come to darkness, gloom, and storm, but you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. You have come come to Jesus, the meditator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So, yes, hallelujah. Yes, you should shout hallelujah, because this is what's real. And, you know, sometimes, like I said, it feels like that that passage feels so dominant in your life. But guess what? That doesn't get the final word. And, you know, Paul wrote something something really interesting. He wrote, I do not consider the sufferings of this present time to be worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He, he had a vision of the weight of glory that was so great. It was, and I know, it, 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 I, I so am scared to minimize your pain because some of you have been through so much and such awful things. But the fact is, this, this is reality, guys. I'm not minimizing our pain, but this is reality. When it comes, if, if life were like two different scales, okay, or if, if life were balanced on two scales, in, in the ultimate scheme of things, that wound, that past violation, will be like a feather on one scale. And on the other scale, the weight of God's glory is so great, so immense, it, you can't even compare the two. The, the weight of God's glory will break the scale. It is so strong and so powerful and we need to rivet our thoughts and our imaginations and our feelings on this truth so when violation makes you feel unsafe in community when it's been community christian community even that has violated you don't let it write the last chapter it's not allowed to satan is not allowed to convince you of it it's not allowed trust that this is what is true. So, in summary, determine if it's a true violation or not. Got to do that hard work. Response number two, embrace God's call to rebuke. Response number three, meditate on God's wrath or leave room for God's justice to have its way. Response number four, embrace your powerlessness. And response number five, meditate on your real future, your real future.